We can read, we'll start off in verse 8 through 10 in 1 John 1, get a running start into chapter 2, verse 1. He says in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Again, here we see the love that John has for the people he's writing to. He says, my little children, I love you guys. I care for you guys. That's why I'm warning you of these things. And again, I encourage us to be praying as we're listening to God's word. Lord, am I deceived right now? Right? The toughest thing about being deceived is you don't really realize you're deceived till later on, right? In the midst of being deceived, in the midst of deception, you don't know what's going on, right? And oftentimes we can even argue our points of deception, right? It's sad, hopefully none of your kids, right? Every once in a while you see two kids arguing about Santa Claus and the authenticity of Santa Claus, right? And the poor kid, he's deceived. And yet he's fighting for St. Nick and who he is and all he's able to accomplish in one night. But he's deceived, And there may be some of us here that we're deceived. We think we're a child of the light, but hopefully God's word and this test will reveal to us if we really are a son or daughter of God. Right? The warning in verse 8, no one is perfect. Everyone has sinned. If we say we're not sinning, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not within us. The hope that we have is in verse 9 that we can confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then in verse 10, the warning of the false doctrine, the false teaching of sinless perfection. If we say, I I haven't sinned or I had never sinned or I stopped sinning, we're making God a liar and his word's not in us. Then he tells us, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Again, that word sin, I don't know how often you use it, right? Around the cooler or as you're talking to people on Zoom, right? But that word sin, it's to miss the mark. It's a term that's used in archery or marksmanship when you have one bullet, you have one shot, you have one arrow, and you have the bullseye. And if you miss that bullseye, you say, I've sinned. And the thing is that God has set up morals. God has set up a path of righteousness. God has set up a path of honor. God has set up a path of his law that if we miss it, we've sinned. Right, Our world today tells us basically that morals, it's all objective. What's wrong or right to you is not wrong or right to me. So the bullseye is constantly moving, right? It's always moving. Yeah, you could just shoot and you might hit it or you may shoot and you miss it. Ah, everybody misses it. Who cares? It's all relative. It's all about your upbringing. That's not the case. God's word gives us a clear bullseye. We need to follow God, follow his word, and love him. And all throughout scripture, there is this balance. There's this balance when it comes to sin and us becoming more righteous as we come closer to God. The beauty and the balance is that we should never boast in ourselves or how far we've come in the Lord. We should never boast about how little we sin and how incredible we are with our self-discipline and we sin so little compared to this new believer and, ah, pobrecito, right? They sin so much, right? We should never boast in our own self-righteousness. However, we should never use this gift of grace and mercy and love we should never use and abuse these promises of his faithfulness to forgive us as a reason to run quickly into sin 
right? There's a balance there. It's not of ourselves, but now we don't use God's grace and say, yeah, all sin. He'll be okay with it. It's not like I'm going to die today, right? No one ever really thinks they're going to die today. But, right, I'm not going to die today. I'll say I'm sorry tomorrow. And that should not be our goal. That should not be our mentality. Sin should always concern us. Our goal today should be, Lord, I don't want to sin today. Right? I don't know what your goal is for today. But our goal as believers should be, Lord, I don't want to sin today. Lord, I do not want to miss the mark. And the whole reason, the whole thought process behind this is not for our own self-righteousness. It should not be, Lord, I don't want to sin today because I'm so much better than my spouse or I'm so much better than my coworker, or I'm so much better than this other person at church. Our desire to not sin should be rooted and grounded in our desire for fellowship with God. Right? We saw that in 1 John 1. We'll look at it in a little bit, a couple of scriptures, right? Our goal today should be, Lord, I do not want to sin. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. We see Paul and the mindset he has towards this goal of, Lord, I don't want to sin today. My goal is to not sin today. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 tells us, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. We'll see that later on in 1 John 2, right? Be imitators of God as his dear children and walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication... And all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. So again, not only should our goal be, Lord, I don't want to sin today, but it's, Lord, I don't want sin to be even named in a sentence with me. And Paul says that's what's fitting, that's what's appropriate as a believer is that fornication, uncleanness, covetousness should not even be named among us. A rumor of these things should not be able to stick to us because of the heart and mindset we have for the Lord. Oh, Zach said a perverted joke. Oh, yeah, I can see Zach saying that. No, that shouldn't be the case. It should not be able to stick to me. Oh, so-and-so's into this, so-and-so they're into this. It should not even stick to us because this is what's appropriate for a believer that's the mindset we should have. We could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul, the same thought process, right? Lord, I don't want to sin against you today. I don't want to break fellowship with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11. Look at the depths that Paul shows us the attitude we should have towards sin and the attitude we should have to be wanting this lasting fellowship with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11 Right? It's part of his reason for writing 1 Corinthians. He says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Again, our goal of not sinning should be to the point where if someone else is claiming that they're a Christian and yet they're constantly living in sin, we should not walk with them to the point that we should not even have lunch with them. We shouldn't break bread with them. 
That should be how deep our desire to not break fellowship with God. It should be that much that we desire, Lord, I don't want to break fellowship with you. And it also reveals to us that we're warning our brother and sister that if they're doing this habitually, they're not a believer. Right? We read in 1 John 1 that if we're right with God, we're going to have fellowship with one another. And we're going to have fellowship with God. 1 Corinthians 5.11, again, if we are ha- we're spending time with a brother or sister who's sexually immoral, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, an extortioner, you shouldn't even be eating with them. You warn them and you love on them. Back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, right? This is why we do this. This is why we say, Lord, today I don't want to sin, right? Because God is light. And we want to be children of the light so we can have that fellowship with him. 1 John 1, 6 and 7, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, family, remember, sin breaks fellowship with God. Sin always breaks fellowship with God. It breaks the oneness we have with him. It breaks the closeness we have with him. So if we really love him, if we love really being near him, we don't want anything to get in the way of that. And that's why we say, Lord, I don't want this to even be named among me. And this is, this is a high bar, right? But the bar gets taken even further. You could just write down Matthew 5, verse 48. Jesus tells us, he tells his disciples, Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. What's Christ's desire for us? To be perfect. I say, that's impossible. And you're right. That is impossible, right? We're not going to make it. John literally just told us no one can say that they're perfect, that they have not sinned. This is a high bar. And it's an ongoing battle between our flesh, right? If it was a battle for Paul in Romans 6 and 7, how much more a battle for each and every one of us, right? I know I'm, I'm the only one that all the things I want to do, I never end up doing, Right? All the things I never want to do, I always find myself doing, right? And that was Paul's battle. And that's the battle we will be in until, like we sung, that we're face-to-face with Christ. And now we don't have to fight with our flesh any longer. The Lord has a high bar for us. And the thing is, all throughout Scripture, God never drops the bar. God doesn't say, hey, you can't make it, so I'm just going to lower the bar. No, he keeps the bar high, but yet he's gracious enough and merciful enough that when we mess up, He loves us and he forgives us and he says, all right, let's do it once again. You see, God wants us to have the right mindset. I don't know if any of you here have an extreme mindset. My wife tells me that I can be a little extreme at times, right? More like most of the time, I'm pretty extreme. It's all or nothing mentality with me, maybe not you guys, right? If we're dieting, we're eating nothing but chicken breast and broccoli, right? But the moment we mess up, We get Sundays, we get deep fried Twinkies, right? We get Krispy Kreme burgers, we get a Taco Bell. We just get it all. It's just one extreme or the other, right? Raz mentions it whenever you say, Lord, I want to fast today, right? And you wake up, you forget, you drink the apple juice, and you say, oh, Lord, I broke the fast. Bring out the bacon, bring out the eggs, bring out the toast, and you say, Lord, it's just too late. I've gone too deep, right? The right thing to do is say, Lord, you forgive me, you love me. I had some juice, Lord, I'll keep praying, keep spending time with you today. Right? Some of us, we're either exercising and we're running around in circles anytime someone's talking to us. We're riding our bike to work. We're doing all we can. Or we're doing absolutely nothing, right? 
We buy a Segway so we can just roll around everywhere we go. We look like the people in Wally, right? Just floating around everywhere with a TV and a chair, right? Many of us, we're all or nothing. And here, God does not want us to have that mindset when we fall, right? He tells us there, second half of verse 1, if anyone sins, or more like when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, when and if we sin, right? If and when we sin, we should not tailspin out of control. We should not tailspin into this out of control circle of misery, right? Let me know if this cycle sounds familiar to you. Sin happens, then I distance myself from God, then I distance myself from God's people, then I tell myself, God's people, man, the people at church, they don't really like me. They're a ton of hypocrites. Then I tell myself, God, I'm just too far gone to be forgiven. I know too much, and yet I gave it up. Then I tell myself, this is who I am. I might as well sin again. So then I sin once again, and then what happens? I distance myself from God. I distance myself from God's people. I tell myself, God's people, they're a bunch of liars, a bunch of hypocrites. They don't like me. They don't want me there. Then I tell myself, God, I'm too far gone. I'm too, I can't be forgiven at this point. Then I tell myself, this is my identity. This is who I am. I might as well sin again. Right? That cycle sounds familiar to anyone else here. I'm the only one. Right? John is telling us, don't spiral out of control. If and when you sin, we have an advocate waiting for us. You see, God loves us so much. And he's so omniscient. He's so all-powerful. He's so all-knowing that God knew you were going to sin again. Right? Sometimes we get surprised, right? We fall apart, we make a mistake, and we say, whoa, how could I even do this? God's not surprised. He made a way out already ahead of time. He makes the way out of sin, and then he makes a way once we sin to step back into that fellowship with Christ. Again, our goal is to not sin. And when this is our goal, this is the best way to keep fellowship with God. But when we do sin, we can keep that fellowship with God by going to Christ right away. Saying, Lord, I have sinned. Lord, it's my fault. Lord, I did wrong, right? That word advocate, it's speaking of Jesus Christ. How he is exalted at the right hand of God and he's pleading with God for the pardons of our sins. It's this friend of someone who's accused who voluntarily steps in and personally urges the judge to decide in his favor. I don't know if you ever made a mistake and you have a, a friend who's a friend with the judge or a friend with the teacher or a friend with the police officer, right? And they, they're your advocate. They step in and they speak on your behalf saying, ah, be a little bit kind to them, be nice to them. You see, family, Jesus, if we're a believer here, Jesus is our defense attorney. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous attorney at law. That's who he is for the believers, for every Christian here. The only thing is that his defense work is a little bit different than what we're used to, right? I don't know if you've ever spoken to a defense attorney on the phone. They say, have you spoken to anyone? Have you interviewed anyone? Don't let anyone interview you, right? Don't say anything. Don't ever admit fault. Don't ever say it's you. Right? If they're a good defense attorney, they're going to get you off. It's not going to be your fault. They might even declare you insane so you don't get the charges pressed against you, right? He was just insane. That's why he went 30 miles over the speed limit. He didn't see what was going on, right? That's not the case. You see, when we're standing there in the courts of heaven and God says, hey, is this person guilty? Jesus goes, yes, your honor. What kind of a defense attorney is this, right? 
What do you mean I'm guilty? David Guzik, he paints this beautiful picture. He says, it is as if we stand as the accused in the heavenly court before our righteous judge, God the Father. Our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, he stands up to answer the charges and he says he is completely guilty, your honor. In fact, he's even done worse than what he's being accused of. And now he makes a full and complete confession before you. The gavel slams and the judge asks, what should his sentence be? Our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, answers, his sentence shall be death. He deserves the full wrath of this righteous court. All along, our accuser, Satan, he's having great fun. He's laughing at it. He's laughing at us. We're guilty. We admitted our guilt. He's waiting to see our punishment. But then our advocate asks to approach the bench. And as he draws close to the judge, he simply says, Dad, this one belongs to me. I paid his price. I took the wrath and punishment from this court that he deserves. The gavel sounds again, and the judge cries out, guilty is charged, penalty satisfied. Our accuser starts going crazy. The enemy says, aren't you even going to put him on probation? And the judge shouts, no. The penalty has been completely paid by my son. There is nothing to put him on probation for. Then the judge turns to our advocate and says, son, you said this one belongs to you. I release him into your care, case closed. Again, family, our defense attorney, he works different than this world. And many people are in trouble because they're not willing to say, I'm guilty. There are many Christians today that they're blinded and they're not willing to say, I'm in sin right now and I'm guilty. And that's why they're stuck in the place that they're in, in the tailspin that they're in, because they're unwilling to say, I'm guilty. They're standing before God saying, I have not sinned. And then we already read verses 7 through 9 in chapter 1. So not only is he our defense attorney, but then he's our propitiation. Verse 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but for the whole world. That word propitiation, it's an offering to appease or satisfy an angry or an offended party. I know none of the husbands here, but sometimes husbands get in fights with their wives, right? And then you come home with some cookies or some ice cream or some flowers, right? You take her out to dinner and say, honey, I'm sorry, I messed up. And you're bringing something to appease the angry and offended party, right? Christ was our propitiation. His blood appeased God's wrath on all confessed sin. By the sacrifice of himself, Jesus provided the ultimate appeasing sacrifice to the offended party. You see, nothing else can reconcile us to God. Nothing else can save us from God's oncoming wrath except Jesus' sacrifice. You see, sometimes we try to go to God and we say, God, look how righteous I am. I don't deserve your wrath. God, look how often I've come to church. I don't deserve your wrath. You're going to get a full blast. But when we say, Lord, I deserve it, but I've, I've come to Christ. I cling to the cross. His blood has washed me. I trust in him. He's the Savior. He's risen. He's the Son of God. I'm going to follow him. Then the payment's been paid. A.R. Falsetti says, Christ's advocacy is limited to believers and believers only. But his propitiation extends as wide as sin extends. The whole world. The whole world cannot be restricted to the believing portion of the world. Even Luther, he says, thou too are part of the world. 
so that your heart cannot be deceived, to deceive itself to think the Lord died for Peter and the Lord died for Paul, but the Lord did not die for me. You see, family, that propitiation, that payment, is for the whole world. It's for each and every one of us here. No one is too far gone for Christ's forgiveness, for the payment that Christ paid on the cross. He paid for each and every one of us. He desires to have fellowship and love and friendship with each and every one of us to the point that he'd offer his own son to take our place, to die for us, to resurrect so that then we can have this friendship and oneness with him. He continues then in verse 3, and now we get a test, right? How do we really know that we know God? How do we really know that we're a son or daughter of the light? Verse 3 through 6, it says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... Truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Again, this term of knowing him is not to know of him, is not to have studied him, but is to know God intimately. It's the same word for a husband and wife and how they know each other. They know every part of each other, right? The good, the bad, the ugly, right? They see how the other person sleeps. They see how the other person brushes their teeth. Right? They see everything. They see what the person leaves behind in the bathroom. They see everything, right? They know everything. And this is the term that's saying that do we really know God or do we just know of him? We have an idea of him, right? But the only way we know that we really know him is if we keep his commandments. We could turn real quick to John chapter 14. John is the prequel to 1 John. I know that might be a little confusing. But John chapter 14 verse 21. Very important scripture for us. John 14 verse 21. It tells us, He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, family, sometimes you hear a Christian say, I know the Bible says this, but I'm not going to do it. There's no room for that as a believer. There's zero room for us knowing what we should do in God's scripture and just say, I'm not going to do it. I don't feel like doing that. Again, how do we approach God's scripture? Do we read God's word and we get a hard saying like the disciples said? And we say, Lord, help me to do this. Lord, I want to do this. Or are we reading God's word? We get a commandment and then we look to YouTube to tell us how this commandment doesn't really mean this, right? We go to TikTok theology, right? And then we learn that this doesn't really mean this. We go to TBN and we say, somehow you have to excuse this, right? Some of the husbands here, we read Ephesians 5, right? Love my wife as Christ loved the church. He died. I got to die in this? No, no, no. There has to be some other explanation, right? Some of the wives here, not you wives, right? Other churches, right? I had to submit to my husband. This is 2021. Doesn't God know what year we're in, right? Doesn't he know what's going on? I'll find someone to approve what I think God's word says. You don't know him. You don't know him. If you're trying to excuse away his commandments... God's word is clear. You do not know him. You can write down Romans chapter 2 verse 13. It tells us, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Man, you're hearing God's word. You're here on a Sunday morning. 
But if you don't do what God convicts you to do this morning, it's kind of a waste. You're hardening your heart towards God, and it's only going to get worse and worse. But if you soften your heart, if you're saying, Lord, open my eyes to see if I'm deceived this morning. Lord, reveal to me now if you're not really my Lord because I still have time to change. I still have time to get right with you. And I'm not going to have time later on at the judgment seat. Finally, James chapter 1 verse 22. It tells us, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Again, many of us, we know the right thing to do, but are we actually doing it? Are we actually doing it? It only counts if we're doing it, family. Verse 4, he continues, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Family, are we keeping his commandments? Are we abiding by his word? There's no small print here to free us from this. If we really love him, we're going to be obedient to his word. But whosoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this, we know that we are in him. You see, the more and more we keep God's word and his commandments, the more that we mature as believers. And the more we mature as believers, we can have more assurance that, Lord, I know you. Lord, I'm abiding in you. Lord, I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. But, Lord, I can look back at my Christian walk and see how I have grown. And that leads to assurance in our hearts, saying, Lord, okay, I really do know you, right? When you begin doing a diet, how do you have assurance that it's working, right? If the scale's going down, if the scale's going up, do you have assurance that the diet's working? Like, well, I just gained five pounds. I don't know if this diet's working or not, right? But if it's going down, oh, it's working. Same thing for us. How do you know that you really know him? You're able to look back at your life and say, wow, I've matured with the Lord. And how do you mature with the Lord? Abiding in him. We have to abide in him. Even uh, Pastor Bill, right, the last couple of teachings, how he hammered over and over and over again how we have to have a personal relationship with God. Have to be in the word, just alone, him and us saying, Lord, speak to me this morning. Do we desire that fellowship with God? I was listening to Calvary Pastor, I think it was John Miller. He says, doctrine should be the same for forever. Doctrine should never change. Doctrine, as old as time, that should never change. But now our experience with God should be new each and every day. We should have a fresh feeling, a fresh knowledge, a fresh knowing of God each and every day. Sadly, for many believers, it's the opposite. Our doctrine changes every day. Today, I don't feel like loving my wife, so now my doctrine's changed a little bit, right? Love my wife except for this one week a month, right? Right? Our doctrine changes, right? I'm supposed to love my kids, don't harass my kids, but if they do such and such things, then I can prod them, right? Our doctrine changes. And then now our experience with God, we look back at middle school and say, I remember that camp. I remember that one time I experienced God decades ago. It should be the opposite. Our doctrine should stay the same. But our experience with God, it should be fresh each and every day. And then finally, verse 6, right? It says, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Again, we talked about the bar being high. It can't get any higher than this. Family, are we walking just as Christ walked on this earth? Not walking on water. We're not talking about that. Do we love others the way Christ loved others? Are we standing up to sin and to the Pharisees, to the self-righteous, the way that Christ stood up to them? 
Are we loving and caring for the brokenhearted and the hurting and the sinner like Jesus did? Are we patient with the 12 knuckleheads around us that we spend the last three years of our life with, right? Or have we gotten bitter and we just cut them out of our lives? Are we walking like Christ walked? Each and every day we're saying, Lord, not my will be done, but God, your will be done. Are we walking just as he walked? Are we walking in the humility that he walked in, right? Philippians 2, the humility that Christ walked in each and every day. The stance against sin that Jesus took each and every day. The hard conversations that Jesus would do each and every day. Family, are we walking like he walked? And again, it's, it's a process. We need to mature in it. But can we look at our life and say, okay, Lord, I see some sort of trajectory here. I see some sort of maturity here. And anytime you love someone and you spend time with them, you begin to look more and more like them. You talk like them, you act like them, you have the same, right, same wetkas, the same facial expressions, right? I was mentioning the 9 o'clock service. Some people may not believe it, but when me and Amanda first got married, Amanda was a vegetarian, right? Took a couple months, I think a year, but then I converted her, right? And she changed. <laughs> she changed over time. I didn't impress it, but it just happens, right? The other thing that really changed is there's many people in this room, and usually we vacation one of two ways. Either you vacation, and your vacation is to do nothing, Right? You get to the beach, you do nothing. You eat lunch, then you do nothing. Then you eat dinner, then you do nothing, right? There's some of us that your vacation is to squeeze every drop of juice out of the vacation, right? Every dollar, every minute, every second, you, gotta, you can't stop. can't stop because you're on vacation, right? That's how I grew up. She grew up the opposite way, right? We, we went on a, on a trip together while we were dating, and we went to Disney, and I got a one-day park hopper pass. So I said, oh, you got to hop to every park on a one-day park hopper pass, right? And not only go to every park, but you got to ride every good ride in every park, right? So we were there. We got there in the morning. And we didn't leave till the end. She looked at me and says, we are never vacationing like this ever again, right? <laughs> ever again. And then I learned. And now I like to vacation the way she vacations, right? But are we looking more and more like Christ Jesus? How do we spend more and more time with him? Or in the amount of years you've been saved, are you looking more like this world? Are you clinging to the doctrine of this world more and more? Are you clinging to the doctrine of Christ, looking like Christ more and more each and every day? Then in verse 7, he says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you. These two verses can be a little confusing, right? He says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Let's all turn to John chapter 13 verse 34. And here we see this new commandment. And again, we talked about doctrine. It's the same. And this new is not talking about a new one that is destroying the old one. It's almost like a new and improved version of the old commandment. And here John wants us to know both of these things. So in John chapter 13 verse 34, it tells us, this is Jesus. He tells us, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you're quick, you could turn to Leviticus chapter 19. If your fingers are tired, you could stay put here. But in Leviticus chapter 19, here we see the old commandment. And some people, they like to look at the Bible and they say, oh, God, he sort of changed, right? God went through a renewal. He got an update. The God of the Old Testament is just 
all wrath and anger and destruction. And then the God of the New Testament is just flowers and love and hearts, right? And just beauty. But he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 and 34, we see this old commandment. He tells the nation of Israel, you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the children of your people. In other words, you can't execute revenge on anyone else within Israel. You cannot bear a grudge or bitterness against anyone else. But instead, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I don't know about you guys, but I love myself a lot, right? And now I'm supposed to love everyone else within the body of Christ as much as I love myself, according to the Old Testament. Then in verse 34, Leviticus 19, not only is it for the body of believers... But then he says in Leviticus 19, verse 34, The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So not only is it loving your own countrymen, but then God tells the nation of Israel, anyone that comes in, you're to love him. You're to adopt them in. And if we're honest, this is hard enough as it is to love everyone we come in contact with. As much as we love ourselves, maybe you guys are just passing that with flying colors, but I still have difficulty with that. But then in John 13, 34, if you're still there, right, we just read it. Jesus takes us to a whole new level. He says, the new commandment that I give you, that you love one another, but not as yourself. No, we are to love one another as Jesus has loved us. That's the way that we need to love others. Again, it's an old commandment, but it's a new commandment. And are we passing in this commandment? Then he continues in verse 9, back to 1 John chapter 2. He tells us, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. What he's telling us here is the moment that you have bitterness towards another believer, the moment that you have unforgiveness towards another believer, the moment that you're just angry and you can't stand, the moment you begin to hate another believer, that moment that that decision takes place in your mind, you're walking in darkness. And now even till today, if you have not gotten right with the Lord, if you haven't gotten right with that person, you're still walking in darkness. And then it's saying if you never change your mind and seek that forgiveness, you're going to keep walking in darkness till the day we see Jesus face to face. Then he says in verse 10, but he who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Again, family, we've gotten the moral check to see am I a child of the light or not? Are we keeping his commandments? But here we get the social test to see if we really are a son or daughter of the light. Do you hate a brother or sister? Or do you love them? Not as much as we love ourselves, but as much as Christ has loved us. Is there bitterness towards someone else? Is there unforgiveness towards another person within the body of Christ? Did you start coming to the 11 o'clock service because someone at the 9 o'clock service offended you, right? He said, I'm not going to that service anymore. That parking lot ministry told me to park there, and I'm not parking there, right? Is that you? Right? Sometimes we get a little bit nervous as pastors when someone comes and says, hey, I used to go to this church, but they offended me, they bothered me, so I stopped going there, and I'm going to start coming to this church, right? We get worried because what happens when we offend them? Our church is not perfect. I'm here, you're here, this church is not perfect, right? 
Everyone's going to get offended at one point or another. But are we able to love one another? Family, that's a great warning to us. If we begin to hate, then we begin walking in darkness. And then if we continue to walk in darkness, it will get to the point where our eyes will become blinded. We'll be blinded to the fact of where we're at. We'll be blinded to the fact that we're not walking in the light with God. And we'll be blinded to the fact of what's real and not real within our lives. Of how to do well and how to not do well within our own lives, right? Anyone here rather walk in darkness instead of the light? Doesn't everything take like 10 times longer walking in the dark? I don't know how many of you, your bedroom has the light in like one corner of the room and the bed in the other corner of the room. How long does it take to get to your room, right? You're just feeling around. You're looking around. You don't want to stub your toes. You don't want to be in that. But yeah, if we have hatred, if we have unforgiveness, if we have bitterness, if we have resentment towards another brother or sister in Christ, that is exactly where we are at. And what dad, what mom does not desire for his kids or her kids to love each other? Right? Any parent here say, man, I wish my kids hated each other more. I just wish my kids would fight more often, right? We live in a day and age with social media, so everybody puts up their highlight reels, right? I don't think I've seen any parent be like, oh, look, my kids are fighting. Oh, I got to put this on the gram, right? Let, let me record this and let me put this, how my kids are like beating each other up and fighting and screaming at each other. The whole world needs to see this, right? No, when do we take the pictures, right? Is that 1% of the whole day when they actually like have their hands all on one another, right? And the sun is setting and that's the picture we put on the highlight reel for everyone else to see, right? More often than not, they're all asleep because they'd never be in that position otherwise, right? And that's what we want. That's what we desire as parents. So how much more would our perfect heavenly father desire for his sons and daughters to not only get along, but to actually love one another? Again, the moral test for us, the social test for us here in 1 John 2, it's not even how much we love the world. We know that we should love the unbelievers and care for them and share the gospel with them. But sadly, there's many Christians that say, hey, I can't stand believers, but I'd rather be with unbelievers all the time. And you're walking in darkness. You're blinded to the truth of the matter. You need to love the body of Christ and you need to love whoever is hurting, whoever is in need. Right? They try to trick Jesus with that. Jesus says, you have to love your neighbor as right, Christ loved you. And they say, okay, Jesus, but who is my neighbor, right? The person who actually lives next to me, my wife who's sitting right next to me, right? The person that I like and that's why I move close to them, that's my neighbor. He says, no, your neighbor is whoever is in need around you, right? The Samaritan, the religious people, they said, I don't got time to help this guy out. I got to go do this. I got to do this my religious duty. I got to go to church. I got to do this. I don't have time to help this guy out. But the Samaritan took time out of his day to help the one who was in need. So even us as believers, if we see people here at church in need, we should be loving them. See people in need out in the world, we should do our best to help them and to love on them. But the test for us here, it's found within the body of Christ. And if we have hatred towards another brother or sister, we are not walking in the light. Finally, he says what? That we can become blinded because we're walking in the darkness for a prolonged period of time. My kids are in that phase where they really love animals. And there's certain fish and certain animals in caves that completely lose their eyesight. Because they live in darkness for such a long period of time, their eyes, they just go blank. Same can be said true of us. If we stop using our eyes, we will literally go blind. 
And there's some of us here, we've been walking in darkness for such a prolonged period of time. We're blinded. We don't see how far we've drifted from the Lord. We don't realize that we've been walking with God with so many years and our trajectory hasn't gone up. Our trajectory has gone down. We're living in a question mark. Again, family, this afternoon, may we be praying, may we be pleading, Lord, open my eyes. I thank God that Jesus is the one that can heal the blind, right? He can heal the lame man. He can heal the paralytic. So even here, if you are blinded and you cry out and you're saying, Jesus, open my eyes to see the truth of where I'm at. Lord, open my eyes to see if I really am a child of light or a child of darkness. Again, family, do you keep his commandments? That's the moral test. When you look at God's word, you're saying, Lord, I don't want to sin against you today. Or do you read God's word and say, nah, that can't be it. That can't be what it is. It's 2021. Don't they know this? That can't be God's word. That's the test. Are you a child of the light or not? Then the social test. Do we love our brothers and sisters? Do we love the body of Christ? Why would you want to be a Christian in heaven? You're stuck with us for all of eternity, right? Do you love the body of Christ? You're a child of God. You're a child of the light. If you walk in the light, if you confess your sins, and if you love your brothers and sisters, you're not a child of God. You're not a child of the light. If you're walking in darkness, if you're denying your sinfulness, and if you're hating your brothers and sisters, 